Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with BC's Chief Coroner, Lisa Lapointe. It's an honor to have her on the podcast, as she is not only a kind and lovely person to speak with, but someone with a wealth of knowledge and information. Investigating 14,000 deaths annually in British Columbia, her and her team have a lot on their hands, especially over the past years, given the drug toxicity crisis, the pandemic, the heat dome, and other factors. Lisa LaPointe shared with me tips on how her and her team manage their own mental health through the roles that they do as coroners. And she also shared her points of view on preventing further deaths in British Columbia in the future. We discussed some of the top causes of death in the province, various ways in which they relate to each other or relate to other factors. And it was a really insightful conversation. I look forward to sharing it with you. And I am honored to present BC's Chief Coroner, Lisa Lapointe. So today, as the first episode of season two of Rachel Bexton Connects, I am honored to welcome uh, BC's Chief Coroner, Lisa Lapointe, to the podcast. Uh, I am honored to have her here uh, because she just is a wealth of information. I think it is also uh, in the times we are in right now, considering the health challenges that we have been facing, uh, important to speak with the chief coroner and, and really learn about what it is that she does as an expert in this field and get some insight uh, from an expert such as Lisa. So um, Lisa, I would just like to first start off by welcoming you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation, Rachel. I really appreciate it. So as we start, I was looking through your bio, and I was actually quite surprised by what I saw. It was very diverse. Uh, you've worked in correctional facilities. From what I understand, you were a warden um, at a prison at one point. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your career path and, you know, kind of some of the, the work that you've done in the past and, and how you ended up in the essential role now as BC's chief coroner? Okay, well, thank you for the question. And I should um, let you know, Rachel, that I'm in Victoria today and on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen people. As, thank as you. Soggy's First Nations. Uh, and I'm incredibly grateful to live here. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, I've had a bit of an interesting uh, background. And really, I can't say that it was all planned. I've been in, in some, some occasions in the right place at the right time. So I, I did um, an undergrad degree at SFU and a law degree at UBC. And I knew I didn't want to practice law. That really wasn't um, appealing to me. But although I do find the law very, very interesting, uh, particularly how it impacts all of our lives in so many ways. So I came to work for government in 1994. It was the brand new Information and Privacy Act. Um, and they were looking for folks with law degrees to help give advice to all of the programs in government about how that impacted their uh, operations and, and requests for information. I had been for years seeing in the paper coroner's mention. Coroner was investigating this and the coroner was investigating. I'd always in the back of my mind thought, that sounds like interesting work. And I was very fortunate at the time. Um, my husband then was a police officer and met the regional coroner. It was one of those fortuitous circumstances. Mentioned that his wife was interested. She said, have her come and sit down. And um, that was kind of the start. I first started as a part-time coroner in Victoria. Soon after that, got a full-time job. Um, and I attended scenes of death in the greater Victoria area for the next seven years. I was on call 24 hours a day for a week at a time. It's incredibly humbling work and uh, work where you feel like you really can make a difference. And I I really not so sure, I can't say enjoyed the work is a, is a very good word, but I felt like it was valuable work uh, and really meaningful work. And I really enjoyed being with the corner service. And so I stayed with the corner service in a number of different roles until 2003. And then I needed a change. Um, I think sometimes in a position, you can start to feel a little bit burnt out, maybe. Yes. Uh, I had met the warden at the Vancouver Island Regional Correctional Center from investigating some deaths there. 
they had some positions. And so I moved over. I, I competed for a job there, and I was the assistant deputy warden of programs. And that's a, a secure custody center for men here in Victoria. Uh, also fascinating work. And I bet. Yeah, really interesting. I think we have these sort of ideas of what things are like that are, are, are really governed often by television. Um, and when I got into the Secure Custody Center, it was a real eye opener. The correctional officers were very thoughtful, uh, very compassionate, uh, very good relationships for the most part. Um, with even the inmates, there was a lot of respect. And the inmates themselves, I think that's where I really started to understand that some of the backgrounds that they came from were horrendous, I guess, for lack of a better term. And in some ways, they were also victims of circumstance, which was really interesting. I stayed with Corrections Branch for about five years. And then again, was one of those kind of opportunities, a fellow that had been a police officer in Saanich when I was a coroner on the street, was now the director of the new civil forfeiture office and asked me if I'd be interested to go and work there. So I worked at civil, with the civil forfeiture program, which was also quite new for about three years. That helped me build some skills that enabled me to compete for this position, which I moved into Chief Corner in 2011. So it kind of seems as though it was meant meant to be in a way. Uh, as you said, it's 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 not easy work and certainly humbling work, but uh, you were there, then you were somewhere else, and then you returned. So perhaps it's a calling for you in a way. Yeah, I think so. I think once, you know, it's funny, once you start in the coroner's work, because you feel there's such an ability to impact people's lives. So, you know, to be there for people really on the worst day of their life and to make a difference. You know, and I we I say that to the coroners when we hire new coroners and we have training events, and I often will say people won't remember what you told them. They're traumatized, they're in shock, but they will remember your kindness and they will remember your compassion, and that's what will mean the most to them on that day. So it's really good work in that way. And um, as coroners, we can make recommendations to change things so that in the future, a death can be prevented. And that is also the really positive aspect of our work. And people always often ask that. That must be really hard work. And it's hard dealing with grief. It really is. And um, that's very challenging. But the ability to prevent future deaths is uh, is really, I think, what makes it ultimately a very positive vocation. Yes, and I'm going to get to that because I think that's a very interesting part of the work that you do, for sure. Um, but I do want to ask you, uh, for my own knowledge and for, for listeners who, who may not be aware, what exactly is the day-to-day -day work of the BC Chief Coroner? So what does the typical day look like for you? What do you do in your role exactly? Hmm. I'm not sure there's a typical day <laughs> because they're all so different, but you know, we, I'm responsible for the operations of the BC Coroner Service. Uh, we have about uh, 14,000 deaths reported annually, so we need to be sure that we have coroners all over the province able to respond to a reported death and conduct an investigation in the field. The field coroners then uh, transfer their investigative material to one of the units that will investigate that specific type of death. So if it's a um, child death, for example, we have a unit dedicated to children's deaths. We have a unit dedicated to uh, um, acute substance toxicity deaths. So ensuring the smooth operation of all of that. We authorize um, autopsies and toxicology testing is necessary. So I need to be sure that those services are available as needed across the province. We do uh, reviews of deaths. So we have a child death review unit. We also do other death review panels. Uh, right now we have a death review panel underway into our third death review panel into the toxic drug crisis. So at any, on any given day, um, I might be, I don't review every um, death that's reported, of course. We have directors who support their teams. Um, but if there's a request for a report from the media or there's a recommendation that the coroner is making, then I review those reports uh, to ensure that, you know, all of the information that we need to share is available and that we're not sharing information that we shouldn't share. So that fine balance between personal information and um, information that's in the public interest to share. Uh, we have many, many partner agencies that I collaborate with on a regular basis. So 
provincial health officer, the representative for children in need, the First Nations Health Authority, um, the different ministries of government, the, uh, the uh, Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, uh, Children and Family Development. So, you know, as issues arise or questions come up, I'll be talking with one of my colleagues in one of those areas to see what information we can share to support each other's investigations. And um, and then always, always trying to support the corners as best we can. So, you know, ensuring that they have the appropriate training and policies and tools, frankly, equipment for the job that they need to do. So um, it is varied. Every day is a little bit different. Um, we, we will often do reports for public review. Uh, we're working on a couple of those right now. So touching base with the report writers and, and our communications folks to make sure that those are where they need to be. So, um, you know, really, ultimately, my goal is to ensure that the public has confidence in the work that the coroner service is doing. That when a death happens, there is an objective uh, quality investigation into that death and that we report the circumstances that need to be reported and give the families the answers that they need to have. Yes, I would imagine the families are, are a key part of this and really wanting to have answers to how their loved one uh, passed away. Yeah, absolutely. Families first, really. They are, they are the folks who care the most about the deaths that we investigate. Uh, and so for me, the priority is always for the coroners to be of service. I mean, we are a coroner service. And so are we supporting families? The coroners are not grief counselors and they have to be careful, not, you know, that there are other professionals, but to be respectful, um, uh, demonstrate cultural humility, be compassionate and, and really help the families as best they can as the investigation progresses. Now, switching, switching kind of over to you as a professional in this role, I would imagine that in addition to the skill the job requires, it would also require, I don't know if it's discipline or if it's learned over time and ability to separate kind of uh, work from the personal, I'm not sure, but I would imagine it would be at some times, you know, difficult for, for you to see some of the things and, and uh, you know, trends that are evolving, cases that you're seeing, how do you ensure that you're taking care of your own mental health throughout this process and this role? Yeah, that's a really great question, Rachel. And I thank you for asking it. So we have become certainly over the years, so I guess this is my 29th year with the government, government public service. You know, as I said, most of that time has been with the coroner service. We certainly have become more aware of the impacts on our mental health of this kind of work. And we now, when we bring on new corners, we have training sessions and we provide them guidance on self-care and what to look for. And, um, you know, personally for me, I guess I'm very fortunate. I have three children. They're all in their thirties now, but when I went home, I was very busy with my children. And so I was able to, I think I'm, I was able to more or less compartmentalize my work. And I often found that when I got to work, not that I forgot about my children, but you know, head down work became the focus. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it just, you know, like anybody else, important to get outside, long walks, uh, I've Different times in my life, I've, you know, been a, a runner, yoga enthusiast. I, I like to ride my bike, you know, all of those things. And then also, we just have an incredibly supportive team here at the Corner Service. Just, it's a culture that is supportive, uh, kind. You know, we joke around with each other a lot, always at each other. You know, um, there, there are very clear lines about things that we, we don't joke about. Mm-hmm. But certainly poking fun at each other is not um, in, a, in, a, in a kind, supportive way. And I think that's one of the things that it's been really important to me to try to maintain over my time as chief coroner is that culture of uh, support. And uh, we're a small agency. You know, there's probably 150 people uh, all in at the coroner service, about half of whom are part-time coroners in the province. And we have a big mandate, so it's really important that we work together and, and support each other. And um, I'm just really fortunate that I, I work with amazing people. That's great. No, it's, it's it's excellent to hear that you have those sessions on on self care. I imagine that makes a big a big difference for for people in their role. Yeah. So and the timing. Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, we also just started in, in this year, a critical incident stress management team, a peer, mm-hmm. peer led. So our quarters can reach out to each other. And that, um, I think that's really important. Yes, I, I would think so. Um, and it actually leads into the question I was about to ask, which is, you know, that the, the last you know several years have been years in which we have never seen uh, i mean you have been the chief coroner here in british columbia since 2011 um meaning that you've been in the role throughout the covid-19 pandemic and uh sadly through the years of the drug toxicity crisis where our numbers continue to increase um 6 plus daily passings a day in British Columbia alone, which uh, you have mentioned to the media several times, is, is obviously not acceptable um, and, and hard to see. Uh, and um, I would imagine that uh, 2020 up until now, between you know the the pandemic, uh, the drug toxic toxicity crisis, as well as um, deaths related to heat uh, during the heat dome, uh, would have been the most difficult. Uh, years for you. Can you speak to that? And also in seeing some of the things you see in your role, I would imagine that that would affect your views on things like drug policy or maybe mandates during COVID or, you know, things about people having air conditioning or access to cooling. You know, does your role in seeing uh, the ways in which people are passing away far too much affect your, your views on, political views on some of these issues? Yeah, that's a, another great question. So the, it's, the coroner service is an independent service and it's really important that people understand that we are objective and impartial. So we're not advocates, but we do have that ability to make recommendations to prevent future deaths. So we're always considering when, as we're investigating a death or deaths, is there anything that can be done differently to prevent similar deaths in the future? Uh, and absolutely around the, toxic drug crisis um, uh, around the heat dome, uh, the deaths you know, due to the heat dome in 2021. We have made recommendations and we're always to that. The, the toxic drug crisis is heartbreaking. Uh, and I, I struggle sometimes because in my agency, it overwhelms everything we do. Um, 30%, over 30% of the deaths that we investigate uh, are related to toxic drugs. And okay. yeah, it's, it's, it is shocking. And what's hardest is, well, the grief of the families, of course, because they are absolutely heartbroken. Um, I hear from people whose family members are still alive but struggling mightily and not able to get the source, the resources that they need. And that also very, very hard. It, it certainly has changed my view in terms of what's needed to prevent, for example, talking about the drug, the toxic drug crisis. Um, I investigated deaths due to toxic drugs or what we used to call drug overdoses for many years as a coroner. And so I, I had a, I don't think I had the same view, maybe as the general public, that people who died from toxic drugs or drug overdoses were just like the rest of us, mm-hmm. you know? And I yes. think somehow people have this vision of somebody who uses drugs is different from me. No, people who use drugs are just like us. And we all use some substance or another. It's, you know, just different, different choices. Um, it has made me much more, uh, I guess it's been my, I've been very fortunate to have met so many researchers, um, people with lived experience, families of people with lived experience, frontline workers, uh, physicians, addiction medicine specialists, public health specialists. And it's given me a real insight, I think, into drug policy and how we ended up where we are in this crisis. And you know, I, I think like many others, the war on drugs was something that we, you know, we, we lived for decades and there was a real dedicated effort to stigmatize and dehumanize people who use drugs. Um, I think it was well intentioned in that the, the ultimate goal was to help people move away from drugs. But honestly, 
how do we help people be healthy by making them feel worse? Yes. So the you know the criminalization um, of of people who use drugs has been tremendously harmful, and that's something that I've come to understand from the work that you know that we've done and from most subject matter experts on our death review panels. Um, so yeah, you, you certainly, I have changed my outlook it, on that, um, on recognizing that, of course, drug use, the effects of drug use are a health issue. Uh, this is not a law enforcement issue. And we know our law enforcement, um, community has said that loud and clear. We can't arrest our way out of this. Arresting people does not make them better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, really understanding that this is not about individual choices as much as it is about the system that's in place where people turn to drugs because there aren't the mental health supports. There aren't the physical health supports. Uh, they don't have uh, places to live. Uh, there's a lot of despair uh, and hurt connected with uh, why people use drugs uh, or why people stay using drugs. And so I, I think I, I really started to understand that much more from a systems perspective. And we need to focus on changing those systems, um, including drug policy. Because, yes. um, you know, uh, focusing on one individual at a time is you know, certainly we want to help individuals that are seeking help. But the goal is to change our systems and ensure that the, we have the infrastructure in place that when people are, are reaching out, there are services and supports there for them. We just don't have that right now. No, no, we don't. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure if you knew this about me, but uh, I've been a business owner now for about 23 years. And uh, due to a back injury, I uh, became uh, dependent on opioids and was a, a functioning, uh, if you can say, functioning um addict uh, and business owner for uh, almost two decades uh, before I found my way out of that. And, and um, I, I'm blessed to be here because it was uh, when I recovered from uh, my substance uh, dependency was uh, right before fentanyl entered the, the system and the drug supply. So uh, I, I, I kind of just missed that. But um, you more than anyone would see that uh, substance use uh, and obviously death due to it it, does, it doesn't discriminate uh, no matter your age your income your background um, I imagine that uh, it's hard to see anybody obviously every single life uh, is e- equally as important um, but can you speak briefly to to the stigma around drug use and I don't know any steps or one step that you feel may move the needle even a bit. Uh, it's really a goal of mine in finding ways to break down that stigma because that stigma and that shame, um, as some of my guests have identified and I agree with, is almost as deadly as the as the drug use itself. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. Thanks for sharing that, Rachel. And I think that is so important that people like you who have a voice and who have influence are are willing to share their stories and dispel that stigma around that people who use drugs are somehow bad people. I mean, that's what we were for decades. That was the message. And it's just so not true. I mean, it's all of us. We all at different times um, have turned to different substances. and. You know, the conversations, it's been, it's been very frustrating lately because of the politicization of the substance use crisis. This is a health issue that needs everybody in the country because we are experiencing the loss of our loved ones across the country. Every province and territory is experiencing this, some more than others. And um, everybody needs to work together. So, it, you know, we need to have that. How do we support people to wellness? And we can't be, it can't be this divisive, you know, tra- uh, a treatment versus safe supply. Yeah. Or, or decriminalization versus uh, um, involuntary treatment. Right? It all needs to be based on a place of evidence. What does the 
just the research tell us is effective and not effective. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really the most important thing. It needs to be evidence-based and all coming from a place of how do we support people uh, because you are absolutely right. People are dying everywhere, everywhere in our province. Communities, uh, urban, rural, doesn't matter what your income level is. It doesn't matter what your education is. Um, fentanyl is taking community members everywhere. And we need to understand that the enemy, <laughs> for lack of a better term, is fentanyl, illicit fentanyl. and not supporting harm reduction, not supporting, uh, you know, medication assisted therapies, not supporting treatment um, on demand, not supporting safe supply. If we don't support all of those things, then ultimately what we're supporting is the profitable, extremely profitable illicit drug trade. And we don't want to support that. So, you know, let's help people. Let's make this about helping people and all of this judgment um, that there is around drug use is ironic, but the same people who have so much judgment about people who use drugs will go to the liquor store and buy as much alcohol as they want and drink that. That is not healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I just, it's just ironic to me that we just decided that some substances are going to be lawful and uh, some are not. Yes. Yeah. Um, and really there's harms associated with all of those substances. So it's about harm reduction. How do we support people to be healthy, uh, reducing their harms, not, not stigmatizing, not marginalizing, not blaming, not criminalizing. Um, that's my goal. I just want to see people live uh, and live as the healthiest lives that they can. Well, thank you for that. I think that that is a, a very wise way of looking at it. And I appreciate that, that answer. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, as I said to you before, uh, you know, every death is uh, one that matters equally. Um, but given, you know, some of the cases, I imagine you've, you've encountered youth, maybe even children. Are there any specific kinds of cases related to the drug toxicity crisis, kinds of cases that you have seen or worked with that have especially bothered you? in this area or um yeah you know recently a woman that i used to work with a few years ago in my career reached out to me and she had lost her son to the toxic drug crisis and she was very much like me in, in her career uh, i had known her quite well uh, she came you know, and she worked in government she's now retired her son was about the same age as my son and those are the types of situations that you empathize and you sympathize, but it also really hits home because you think that could be me. And I can just, her pain, I could feel her pain. And then she said to me, I'm going through hell. And I could tell in her communication to me that she was going through hell. And her frustration over so many years trying to keep her son alive uh, paying for treatment and recovery, paying for therapy, paying for the things that aren't insured under, um, you know, basic medical because this man didn't have all the extended medical benefits. She was paying for all of that out of her own pocket. And ultimately, um, he came out of treatment. And oftentimes we hear this because after treatment, if you've been abstinent, of course, your tolerance is reduced. And he did quite well, but he was, there's the stigma and there's the shame. He had a new roommate. He didn't want to tell his roommate that he had, um, you know, been in treatment. So he didn't have the support. And, uh, one day she couldn't reach him and she went over and she found him deceased and he had, you know, died as a result of, of toxic drugs. And it, it made me angry because I think that's what I struggle with the most now is not, you know, anger doesn't, help being I know that being too strident doesn't help but sometimes it just makes me angry because I think that man did not need to die he was reaching right. out for help yeah. his mother was doing everything she could to support him but she was on her own and then we you know we turn around and judge people when the supports 
that they're looking for just aren't there. And I, I think that's what infuriates me the most somehow. It's, a, it's about blaming people um, when we're not, we're not as a society offering them the supports that they need. And six people a day, I think people just probably have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. Every single day, another six people die in this province. Uh, I, the numbers are astronomical and overwhelming. And I, I think sometimes people can't, it's just too much. And so people just don't think about it um, because of that, that loss that we are experiencing. It's the leading cause of death in our yeah. province for those yeah. It's 10 to 59. I, I like I would like to think that people uh, like you say just can't wrap their minds around it or I fear that they devalue the lives of someone who's using drugs um, because of that stigma and that stereotype and, and that person is less valuable, uh, which as you both know is is the furthest from the truth. Um, and that is incredibly sad for us as a as as humankind because uh i mean you know it's it's been going on and as you know it just continues to go on and i it feels like nothing's moving and i know you say but that maybe that anger you know uh pushes you into a little bit of not advocacy but speaking out on some of these issues where you know when we're hearing from moms who and dads and family members and we're hearing from the chief coroner in the province we're hearing from people who are right in the middle of this. Uh, and that is, you know, those are sources that we should be listening to. So, um, but it's, it's incredibly devastating. Uh, I have one more question around the drug toxicity and that is around uh, what you're seeing and that I know fentanyl was the primary and may still be the primary, but I've also heard that benzo others have been found in the system in drugs. Are you seeing new types of drug mixes that are leading to deaths? Yeah, so fentanyl is absolutely the driver of this crisis. So the, the crisis started in 2013 with uh, the arrival of illicit fentanyl in the, the black drug market, and the deaths started to increase. And still, 85% of deaths involve fentanyl. So but for fentanyl, we would not be in this crisis. But we are also seeing uh, increasingly, and it, it goes up and down a little bit, benzodiazepines, which are also sedatives. So fentanyl is an opioid that responds to naloxone, Narcan. Um, so, you know, it's something that you get to a person fast enough and have enough naloxone available can reverse the toxic effects of the fentanyl. But it if somebody also has benzodiazepines on board, that can make it much more difficult to reverse a toxic drug event. And so that has really complicated this crisis. We do sometimes see carfentanil. We see extreme levels of fentanyl. Um, it's not infrequent that cocaine is also, um, you know, people are you know, using cocaine and fentanyl or unknowingly that they're using cocaine and it's, it's infiltrated with fentanyl. So, you know, that that's the thing about the the black market is uh, it is um, there is no quality control. These are not made in labs. This is purely yeah. profit driven, and um, there is zero uh, ability really for people to keep themselves safe. Now, uh, people even you know we know people who are substance users who are cautious and careful and have still died um, because they you know they just can't control. The product and, and the other thing I you know I I don't think people understand is that those who are profiting from the illicit drug trade it is in the, this is not a passive market they are actively recruiting other people to use um, because that's how money is made and so it is very much, uh, I, I've described it as a pyramid scheme. I'm not sure if that's really the best description, but if you, you know, I know you are dependent on the drugs that I give you or that I sell you. If you can sell this many, then you don't have to pay for yours. So okay. it's you know, almost like a direct marketing scheme. I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, constantly looking to get uh, people, um, new people, people who have not used drugs. Uh, and I think that's really important for people to understand because there's a lot of concern right now about 
the province's safe supply program, which is, is you know still very limited, um, and concerns about diversion, um, and that you know people who wouldn't otherwise use drugs are using diverted medications. Um, but and you know there's no doubt that there is some diversion. You know there's always been diversion of, of drugs, particularly you know in the downtown side and neighborhoods like that. Uh, but there's also lots of illicit. Uh, uh, what looked like a, a prescribed drugs, but they're made illicitly. Um, but, you know, if, if, if it's a bit, I think it's a bit of a mistake to think, but for diversion, people wouldn't, you know, use drugs. The illicit market is constantly on the lookout for new clients. And those drugs are absolutely life threatening. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, given the choice between, if somebody's going to use a diverted prescribed medication or something they purchase from the black market, my goodness, any, any day, my choice would be use the diverted prescribed medication. That is, a, you know, what's in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a really challenging time right now with all of these different, um, ideologies, uh, struggling to, uh, maybe gain dominance. And I, I really, as I said earlier, we just all need to work together to stop the dying and stop yes. the harm. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I, and I always kind of rationalize that in the best way in conversations with my husband and others and saying that you cannot get well if you're, if you're no longer with us. So, you know, that we have to put a, stop the bleeding, you know, as you would with a cut. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then we can work on, you know, the more long-term solutions when people are ready to be well. Um, and what those are, are, are complicated as well, but that's another, another conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to shift to other causes of death that you see in your role. I had a look, uh, CCDC list of, of top causes of death, and I don't know how up to date it said 2022 to 2023, but it was listing, for example, cancers, of course, the drug toxicity, heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, respiratory disease, diabetes, and then accidents, liver disease, et cetera on that list. And then of course, uh, suicide and others come not far after. And I'm wondering if it's, you know, if it's possible for you to say if a percentage of these cancer deaths and, and liver disease, for example, could be attributed to substance use such as alcohol. I'm wondering with cancer being at the top of the list with drug toxicity deaths, would alcohol fit into this and play a role, uh, meaning that actually substances are contributing to a lot more deaths than we may know? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So the coroner service investigates certain types of death. Uh, Basically, it's all sudden and unexpected, unnatural deaths. Deaths due to natural disease, for example, cancers, cardiovascular disease, uh, aren't reportable to the coroner service. However, many of them are reported initially, and we do a preliminary investigation and find that, um, you know, in fact, the person with cancer or dementia, you know, they had a cardiac event. Many times, alcohol is involved, so that we know that alcohol is a significant risk factor for cancer. We know that alcohol is a significant risk factor for heart disease, is a significant risk factor for developing dementia over time. Um, the, the medical harms connected with alcohol use are far more costly in terms of an economic impact um, and health impacts than toxic, illicit drugs, uh, which I, I think people, most people don't understand. But you can have the data with me, and I should have looked it up, but I was looking it up recently. But the impacts of, of alcohol use are billions, billions uh, in Canada every year are far more than the negative impacts of substance use in, in terms of those terms. And that's because alcohol use is so alcohol is so widely available. And there's something called the paradigm of prohibition. And it's very, very interesting where it's a U-shaped curve. And at the, the far end of the U-shape is prohibition. And all of the risks and harms associated with prohibiting something that people will use anyway. So then it's created illicitly. It's used illicitly. Uh, people, um, uh, you know, there's, there's drug, uh, sorry, there's gang conflicts 
related to it too. So you can think about the drug crisis or prohibition of alcohol back in the 30s was was the same thing. And then as you move down into the bottom of the U, it's regulation, decriminalization, so but, but regulation, where acknowledging that there are harms associated with using these substances, trying to support people with education, uh, health programs to be healthy. And then the U goes back up on the other side, which is the um, sort of where we are now with alcohol, which is the marketing. Um, the extreme marketing. So really encouraging people to use whatever the substance is and the harms associated with that extreme marketing. And and that really where you want to be as a healthy society is down in the bottom of that you, where it's regulated, we recognize the health risks, we support people to be healthy, uh, we don't stigmatize, we don't shame. Um, it's a very supportive. And I think in some ways, you know, that's where we got, we have been with smoking so you know people don't go to jail for smoking i mean there are certain places where you cannot smoke within certain meters of a building um, and there is a lot of you know public discomfort with people smoking now but people can still smoke they're, they're still free um but we, we try to encourage people to be healthy it, and that is interesting to me where you know we, we've really gone one way with alcohol the other way with uh, you know drugs and both of those are extremely unhealthy. That's why it's called the paradigm, <laughs> paradigm of prohibition. It's really interesting. You Google that. It's quite interesting. Yes, it it is. I, I will look it up because I just find it baffling. It's almost like um, the drug toxicity is the dinosaur in the room and alcohol is the elephant, right? It's just, it's huge and significant and massive, but because the dinosaur is so big, it's, you know, the elephant hides behind it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, and it's, um, like I say, it's baffling to me. I've dealt with friends and family coming out of treatment for alcohol. And I feel for them because you go to a restaurant for your lunch. And the first thing the waitress asks is, or says is long Island iced teas is on sale, or this is on, you know, our special for the day drink. And it, it's just, it, yeah, it, it's a baffling dynamic that I, I would like to explore more throughout the season. So I'm going to look up this this paradigm because it's an interesting mm-hmm. way of looking at it. And unfortunately, a, a sad one because it's it's mm-hmm. something that people really need to take a closer look at. I imagine that that working with the deaths of children and youth is especially difficult, you know, dying before you know, you've had a chance to live a full life. Um, what are some of the top causes of death for those, say, you know, in the in the range from, you know, toddler to the age of 10? And are many of these deaths preventable? Or um, can you say that off the cuff? Yeah, so fortunately, um, there are very few deaths in the province for children between the ages of 2 and 10. Um, the, the extreme prematurity is sort of the leading cause of death for infants. And that's where, you know, infants just born... Uh, before they were capable, um, they weren't fully formed. Um, so that is sort of a leading cause of death infant age group. But children two to 10 don't die very often. Uh, what we would see in that age group is children dying in motor vehicle incidents. Again, not nearly as many as adults, thankfully. Um, drownings, oftentimes in backyard pools, uh, where as you know, people think that the, the child's being observed by somebody else and the child slips out and and falls in the pool, those would be, you know, sort of really the two that, that we would see the most often. Children at that age, you know, thankfully, aren't using substances. We don't see that age group dying related to toxic drugs. And suicides are very, very, very rare in that age group. So it's mostly accidents. And again, as I say, that is a very small number of the deaths that we investigate. Well, I think it's good for people to hear about the drowning in backyard pools because that, you know, is just a reminder. I, I have a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old myself and a, and a 10-year-old, but um, just remembering that safety around the pool when you might be distracted just even for a couple of minutes, right, can, can yeah. be, make the difference. So um, it, can happen. it can happen so quickly with, uh, with little ones. You're right. And, you know, as a coroner, I, I did investigate a number of infant and child deaths. Um, and the hardest thing was the parents, you know, the grief, I mean, you can imagine as a parent and mm. I'm a parent and just the grief of the parents losing their child. And I would go home and I would just be so grateful that my children were there and 
not mm-hmm. sleeping in our beds. And I think that's something about this job that uh, all of us who do this work, we really develop gratitude um, that uh, you, you have compassion for other people, but it makes you appreciate if your child is okay, you know, and um, yes. I think it makes us just more appreciative of every day. And I think maybe that's why we have this culture in our agency of, of support and kindness, because there's, you know, we see so much trauma and try to counterbalance that with being supportive, uh, being close, um, helping each other. Yeah, it gives you a different perspective. You value every day. Yes, yes. I, I guess that is a a benefit to to the traumatic part of what you do is mm-hmm. is is that gratitude. And some of us forget about that. Uh, I do a gratitude. I try to do a gratitude list, if not on paper, then in my mind each morning. So it's it's a reminder that it's important thing, I think, for everyone to do. I wanted to ask you, in 2013, you were awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. So congratulations on that. It's a a real honor um, in acknowledgement of your dedication and expertise to public service for over 20 years. Uh, Ten years have passed since then. Uh, and the work that you do has only become more challenging and harder and, you know, uh, just with, with everything that we've discussed. How did you feel when you received the honor? Um, and do you feel as though honors such as those make a difference in kind of inspiring you to work harder? Or do you think it's just a nice recognition of the work that you do daily? Yeah, you know, I think uh, recognition is so you value it you know i i was so appreciative and surprised in some ways when i received that i'm really grateful you know basically i mean i was doing my job and i've always tried to do whatever i was doing to the best of my ability um you know and, and support the people that i work with and the people that i work for which is the public because i've always been in the public service and i don't think i don't know that awards like that are necessary but they certainly make you feel you know humbled i guess and grateful and think wow somebody thinks that i'm doing good work (laughs) and and that's always nice uh so yeah it was um it was a bit of a surprise but yeah certainly i was very appreciative i really appreciated uh, that recognition yeah very nice well, I think they're, you know, awards are, are lovely. Um, I had some conversations with a few people, a couple of journalists, um, just basic conversations about U.S. Chief Corner, and, and it was it was all very, very positive uh, things I've seen about um, comments and uh, statements that you've made to the media and things that you've said. Um, I just had an instant respect for you and the work that you do. Uh, your outlook and your, uh, it seems like, very authentic dedication to wanting to provide the best possible counsel for avoiding future deaths in such a crisis. So I want to thank you for for all of that. And I know you're not in the advocacy role, but I do appreciate seeing and hearing those things from an expert such as yourself. So thank you. Thanks very much, Rachel. Thanks for saying that. Of course. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm in a position where I can help make a difference and so many people don't have a voice and that's one thing we always said as coroners you know we speak for the dead uh, and try to give a voice to those who who can't speak any longer and their family members you know it, it feels good to be able to help in that way. I usually end every conversation with asking uh, about my guest's favorite nonprofit. Uh, are there one or two that are close to your heart that you want people to know about? Uh, donate to if they can. Uh, I just like to spread the word on on various nonprofits that guests are passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my number one choice would be an organization called Moms Stop the Harm. Mm-hmm. It's a grassroots organization started by two mothers who uh, had lost their sons to the toxic drug crisis. Uh, and Leslie McBain here in Victoria on Pender Island. Um, and also in Victoria here is Jenny Howard. Those are the Victoria folks that I see most often. But Mom Stop the Harm is an incredible organization because these are mothers and some fathers who have lost their children to the toxic drug crisis. And they are 
advocating so strongly and so compassionately for other people because it's too late for them. Their children, have, you know, they've lost their children, but they don't want other people to experience what they've experienced. So they are incredible. Uh, they're an incredible support group for people who have lost a family member. They have support groups for people whose family members are using substances um, and living in fear every day. And they uh, are tremendous advocates for change uh, in drug policy. So I would encourage anybody to go to their website and donate to them. They are just the most caring, compassionate, kind people who, in the face of a loss that most of us can't even comprehend, are are trying to make a difference. Uh, they're just, just heartwarming people. And then <clears throat> I'm an animal lover, so I would always say if anybody has, you know, any extra funds, uh, the SPCA or the Victoria Human Society, um, we have to help our animal friends as well. Well, I think I think you and I share uh, two top favorite nonprofits, ah. so uh, I'm, uh, both of them are, are definitely in my top five. So awesome. both are, are great ones. I'll link to them uh, in the podcast when it when it goes live. So thank you for sharing that. Lisa, I, I wish I had uh, more time, and I know you're a very, very busy professional doing absolutely uh, vital work for our province, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this with me and answer the questions for our listeners, and I know that I appreciate it, they will appreciate it, and thank you for being here today. Well, thank you, Rachel. It's, you know, not everybody knows really what we do as a coroner service, so I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about what we do and, and how we can help. Thanks again. Thanks again for being here, Lisa. Okay, thank you. Take care. Be kind and connect with authenticity. You are listening to Rachel Sexton Connects.